All right, I always hate, hate breaking that up. I'm Matthew, I'm one of the pastors here at H2O. Uh, we are nearing the end of our series in 1 Corinthians. Uh, you guys, we've been camped out here for a long time, so appreciate your patience as we trudge our way through 1 Corinthians. We're studying this church full of a lot of brand new Christians living in the midst of a very pagan city, um, most of them coming out of a very unchristian lifestyle and into faith in Jesus. And we're watching them try to learn what it looks like and how to walk faithfully with God in a place where doing that in Corinth would have been seen as, at best, really strange, and at worst, downright pitiful by the people around them. Uh, many of the uh, Corinthian Christians were, again, brand new to the faith, and they were super zealous. As you read through 1 Corinthians, if you sit and you like do it in one sitting— uh, you'll, you'll kind of get this sense that the Corinthian Christians did not lack for passion. They had a lot of zeal. And sometimes, and maybe you can relate to this, sometimes it's passion that gets us in the most trouble. Sometimes it's our zeal that works against us. And some of that is happening with the Corinthians. We learn in earlier in the book that the people in the church come from all sorts of backgrounds, some of them with checkered pasts, and again, they're coming to know Jesus. Their entire world has been turned upside down by this new faith, and it's really fun for us to sort of watch them as we read 1 Corinthians, to watch them learn how to walk in discipleship to Jesus. In last week's text had us in chapter 9, and, and the, the instructions from the Apostle Paul who wrote the letter to the Corinthians were all about how we are supposed to live our faith out in public, how we're supposed to live amongst those who don't share the same faith as us, as us have a different story and a different background than us, how to build bridges in hopes that people might see the person and the power of Jesus in us and ultimately be brought into the family of God. We talked about Paul's words to become all things to all people so that by all means, some might come to know Jesus as king. And Corinth was this cosmopolitan city with all sorts of people, all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of beliefs, all sorts of cultures. And much like it is for us today, tell me if this sounds like our world today, some of the people didn't really like the other people. Some people kind of hated other people. And what Paul says in chapter 9 is essentially, don't play the game of vilifying people, of demonizing people who are different than you. Don't hate them, don't label them, and worst of all, do not spiritually discard them, as if God would, would not even want to save a person like that, right? Instead, find common ground, meet them on their turf, turf, find your common humanity, your common desires, your common longings, listen and learn, and do it with the expectation, right, that God will open doors for you to share your faith. And this past week at Citigroup, we had this great conversation on how we live this out today in our own super divided and hostile world. How to be, listen to this, people full of conviction for God's truth and deeply committed to the kingdom come, and yet equally committed and zealous for kindness and charity toward other people. 
two commitments, right? A, 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 a zeal for truth, for seeing the kingdom of God come on earth as it is in heaven, right? And yet equally committed to kindness and charity. Two things that I think in our world are rarely seen held together. Rarely seen held together. Imagined in our minds, maybe, right? Uh, held up as a, a great thing, a great idea to pursue. Sure, that's an honorable pursuit, but actually lived out? Really rare, really hard to see. And the thought I had as I left Citigroup on Thursday night and I was driving home is, weren't we always supposed to be a peculiar people? Like, weren't we always supposed to be sort of strange? And I know that might sound like weird to hear, but like in, in 1 Peter chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 9, in the original King James, uh, which gets translated out in the NIV and other translations, it uses this language of Christians, of the church being a peculiar people. So hang with me as I try to tell you how strange you actually really are. Um, so the scriptures tell us that the wisdom of God confounds the wisdom of the age. The wisdom of God confounds the wisdom of the age. So to confound is to amaze, to bewilder, to surprise, to perplex, to baffle, okay? And what we see in Israel and what we're promised in the New Testament is that when we live with Jesus as king and we do it together in community, we become a people unlike any other people on the planet. We become a strange, peculiar people. We possess a wisdom. And wisdom in the scripture is never just knowledge. It's always a way of life. It's always a way of life. We possess this wisdom that sets us apart from everyone else. We are not known by our earthly allegiances, and we are not easily pinned down by earthly categories. We're known simply primarily as Jesus people. We're gospel people, and the gospel and nothing else drives us. And here's the crazy thing. When we live that way, when we own who we are as citizens of heaven, we don't separate ourselves from the world. We don't go off into a holy huddle. The gospel actually calls us into the mess and the brokenness and the hostility of our world to deliver this good news in every possible way and making friends and building relationships with all sorts of people. And I think it'll be the strangest thing when we do this. It is the strangest thing, especially in the world that we live in, for the world to, to see. And so if that's the vision that's set before us, if that's how Paul has told us in Corinthians that we're to live in relation to the world, then the question becomes, what, how do I get there? <laughs> like, what do I need to do this, to live this way? And the answer comes, I think, in large part in the passage that we're going to cover today. And so since chapter 9, a lot of stuff has happened. Paul is now is covering these specific situations that are happening in the church, issues that we can assume the Corinthians included in their letter when they wrote to Paul, because we're reading his res response. So immediately before our section today, he addresses the use of spiritual gifts, the unique abilities and, and blessings that God gives his people, and the ways that those ought to be used and, and exercised in the life of the church. 
And in the section that immediately follows where we'll be today, chapter 14, he goes on to continue to offer more instruction on how the church should worship when it's gathered together in unity. Again, Corinthians are a passionate group of people. They're zealous. They're new in their faith. And as God is pouring out his spirit upon them, gifting them to serve in the church, some cool things are happening, right? Some people are speaking in tongues. Some people are being given wisdom and insight. Some are being given gifts of faith, gifts of healing, teaching, prophecy, etc. But here's what was happening. In the midst of all of that, there were debates and there were arguments. There was jealousy and there's pride. What gifts are the greatest? They wanted to know, right? So what, what's the one? I want the best one, right? If, if it's like, if there's a ranked system, I want the best gift, and if I get the best gift, I want everybody to know that I have the best gift, right? They wanted to know who was the most valuable in the church. Sounds a lot like the disciples, right, as they walked with Jesus. Um, they wanted to know if you had a particular gift, do you have more honor, in a, in a culture that really valued honor, do you have more honor if you have a certain gift? What was happening is all the division that was out there in Corinth had gotten in here in the church. And Paul takes chapters 12 and chapters 14 to speak into that turmoil and into that division. But sandwiched in between is actually where we're gonna be today in chapter 13. This, this chapter functions almost like, it's like a little aside. It's like Paul's taking a little break and he's gonna zoom out, it's like a timeout. And he's gonna talk not about the specifics, he's not gonna be in the weeds, but he's gonna remind the Corinthian Christians in light of what's happening, in light of the division and the infighting and the frustration and the competition and the jealousy, what matters most. So I'm actually going to start with the last half of the last verse of chapter 12, and then we'll go 10 verses into chapter 13. You may note that this passage sounds familiar. You may have heard it in a particular context. We'll talk about that in a second. Here it is. And yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails." But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. Where's the bride and groom? 
Who wants to get married today? Sounds like we're at a wedding ceremony. I'm just joking. Please don't come forward. Um, no spontaneous <laughs> weddings at H2O. I don't, I don't think. I'd have to look through the history books. Um, right? This is the verse that we hear at weddings, and it makes us feel all warm and fuzzy on the inside, as it, I think, probably should. But it's a little jarring to learn that the backdrop of these beautiful poetic words is actually Paul, in a very real way, reproving, challenging, sort of rattling the cage of some young, immature Corinthian believers who were not living in unity with one another. So I hate to ruin that for you for every other wedding you go to. You'll think about what led to these words. Paul did not sit down to write some stuff that he thought would play well at weddings. He is rebuking the Corinthians. And look at how he does it again, verses one to three. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. You know how annoying that would be to just be hearing that? You hear a gong once or you hear some cymbals once and you're like, okay, that's cool. Imagine like five hours of that. Like it's awful and that's what he's trying to get at. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have faith that can move mountains, Imagine that. Like, go there in your mind. If you could actually do that, if you had that kind of faith that you could look at that hill in Bowling Green, um, <laughs> Conneaut Hill, and you could say, go over there, but do not have love. I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, if tomorrow I sell my house and every possession I have and I give it all away and I do not have love, Paul says, I gain nothing. His argument here is astounding. It's almost unbelievable. It's shocking to us and I suspect that it would have been shocking to the Corinthians. What he is saying is this, do not miss this. If you're taking notes, please write this down. It is possible to be spiritually gifted and spiritually bankrupt at the same time. It is possible to be spiritually gifted and spiritually bankrupt at the same time. It is possible to bear witness to the power of God while not possessing the heart of God. That's possible. You can do mighty works in the name of God while also heaping judgment upon yourself. You can speak in the language of angels. You can know all the mysteries. You can move all the mountains. You can give everything you have to the poor. You can be persecuted for the faith. And you can do it in a way that deeply dishonors God and in a very real way mocks him. And I think we just have to let that sit in for a moment, right? For as beautiful as this passage is and how it reads, I think it's just as terrifying. Like this is a hard passage, difficult passage. How is it possible that a person could do so much good and be nothing, to use Paul's words, to be nothing, and the answer is obvious, right? It's right there in the text. When their labor, when their work, when their exercise of their gifts is done without love. 
Paul's point, our first point for today is this, that love is preeminent. Love matters the most. Love is supreme. It outranks everything else. Without love, our gifts, our knowledge, our faith, our actions are hollow. They may genuinely help others, but without love, listen to this, they accuse us. They indict us, the ones who are doing those things. See, God is always after our hearts, right? He's always wanting to do the work of transforming us at the deepest level of our being, not simply getting us to robotically follow the rules and do good things with disengaged hearts. Or worse, what's probably happening here in Corinth, do great things but with self-seeking hearts, hearts that want the glory. And we are so prone to do that, right? Even in our most righteous acts, at the level of our heart, we want to steal just a little bit of that glory. We just want to be noticed, right? I think about what I'm doing right now. I've been tasked, I believe called by God, and with the support of uh, my fellow pastoral team, I've been given the honor of standing up front here a couple times a month to exalt the name of Jesus and to teach the scriptures to this church. And I know, right, because I've, because I've done it, because it's a battle to not still do it today, that I can do this all wrong. I can make what I'm doing right now about my desire to be seen in a certain way, my desire to be liked, to be praised, to be respected. And what Paul would say is, Matthew, if you do that, there's actually language for that. You're doing it without love. And woe is me if that is true. You can do all the right things for all the wrong reasons. You can appear to be incredibly, incredibly godly and be incredibly unloving at the same time. God is not impressed by what we do for him. He is honored when we do it with a, with a heart like his. What really matters to God is not how influential you are. It's not how gifted or talented you are. What matters to God more than anything is how loving you are. I think we struggle with this belief, right? Because we just think God's trying to get us to do stuff, that his primary mission in our lives is just to get us to follow some rules and do the right stuff. And there's certainly value to discipline. There's value to service, I'm not trashing all of that stuff. But what I'm saying is that in all of it, God is wanting to transform our hearts and to make us more and more like himself. That is what he has always been after, to be like who he is, and to love like he loves, to be like who he is and to love like how he loves. We make the mark of maturity in the church, what, how many Bible verses you've memorized, maybe the tally marks of how many people you've led to Jesus, how much you're serving, how much you're volunteering, and Paul is just dismantling that, that economy here. He says the character of our love reveals if we are truly the people of God. See, love is the true mark of Christian maturity. Love is the mark of Christian maturity. What does this love look like? Let's go to verses four to seven and read those again. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Here's my next point. Love 
is too lofty for us. Love is too lofty. Is there, is there anybody in this room who hears this passage and then says, yeah, that's me. My gosh, they wrote that about me. How thoughtful that Paul would do that. Like, he, how did he know that I would, he knew me back then? Okay, um, sweet. Okay, so let's play this out just, just for fun. I'm gonna go up and I'm gonna reread it and I'm gonna replace anytime where it says love or it, which is referring to love, with my name because I don't wanna call any of you out. I'm gonna just judge myself. Matthew's patient, Matthew's kind, Matthew does not envy, Matthew does not boast, Matthew is not proud, Matthew does not dishonor others, Matthew's not self-seeking, Matthew's not easily angered, Matthew keeps no record of wrongs, Matthew does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth, Matthew always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. It sounds preposterous, right? (laughs) Those of you who know me, you're like, yeah, for sure. (laughs) And here's what's even more wild. Here's what's even more wild. In the original Greek, those attributes are written as things that go on continually, that never stop. So love isn't just patient some of the time. Love is never not patient. Love isn't just not self-seeking. Sometimes it is always selfless, every single time. So it would actually sound like this. Matthew, it's gonna get crazier. Matthew is always patient. He's always kind, he never envies, he never boasts, he's never proud, he's never self-seeking, he's never easily angered. Nobody would see this vision of love and then place their life right next to it and say that it's true of them. Nobody in their right mind, right? We see this vision of love, we put our life right next to it, and we have the opposite impulse, right? We recognize that we fall tragically short. The word Paul uses here for love is the Greek word agape. It's this word that holds massive meanings. In Greek, there's a handful of words for love, but for some reason that drives me absolutely nuts. In English, we get one word. We just get love, and I just hate that. But it's just the way it is, right? Massive meaning in this word agape. It's selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love. It's costly and yet constant Love, it's a love that pursues, a love that loves to give of itself. It's a love that heals, that redeems, that restores. It's a love that never fails. Do you see what Paul is doing here? You see what he's doing? He's pointing us directly at Jesus Christ, helping us to see that Jesus is perfect love. Jesus Christ is perfect love. Love is not an emotion. Love is not even just a decision that we make. Before it is anything else, love is a person, the God-made man, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is love lived perfectly, absolutely selfless and sacrificial and unconditional. Let's go back and let's look at this passage and, and read it through the lens of Jesus. Love is patient. Have you ever thought about how patient God is with you. As you continue to go back to those things that you know are not in alignment with God's character, those things that you know won't bring you to life but are set out to destroy you and yet you're drawn to them, yet you find comfort in them and so you run to them and how patient he is day after day, year after year, decade after decade to forgive you 
to give you another try, another chance to tell you that he forgives you. Love is not proud. Jesus Christ, the preexistent, glorious God, came to us as one of us. He was mocked and beaten and spit upon and nailed to a cross like a common criminal. Love is not proud. Love always protects. I think of John 10 where he says, I know my sheep and my sheep know my voice and no one will snatch them out of my hands. There is no evil. There is no work of Satan, no sin that will rip you out of the hands of Jesus if he has saved you and he has called you his son or his daughter. Love always perseveres. I think of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane and the gravity of his atoning death brought into view. He pleaded for the cup to be taken, and it was clear when it became clear that it would not be, what did he do? He went silently and joyfully to the cross. And on the third day, he rose, and in his resurrection is the substance of all of our hope. Even when it appeared that he had lost, right, he won the cosmic victory over sin and evil. Not even death could stop him. Jesus always perseveres. God is love. Jesus Christ is love. That's what Paul is wanting us to see here. We don't just set out to manufacture this kind of love within ourselves. We don't work hard to activate this love that's lying latent within us. We only get it from the one who is love himself. 1 John 4, 19 says, we love because he first loved us. We live in love. We live in love only to the extent we have received it from Jesus. Someone asked one of my favorite Christian thinkers, Dallas Willard, who recently passed away, the question, what is Christianity? This guy had written so many books and spilled so much ink on so many topics, kind of a master of spiritual formation and walking in the way of Jesus. They asked him, what's Christianity? And this was his answer. It's more of me belonging to more of God. It's more of me belonging to more of God. We cannot create this love on our own, but we can receive it from the one who is love. The one who wants to lavish it upon us that we might give it away to the people around us. Imagine what could happen in your life this week. Imagine what could happen in your life over the course of a few years or a few decades if you sat at the feet of Jesus and you received this love day after day after day and then you went out and you gave it away to the people that God has put in your life. What would happen if we did that, right? Let's finish this section as we start to wrap things up. Paul goes on, verse eight, love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease, and where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. And he goes on, there's a few other verses in that passage that we're not gonna read for the sake of time. Here's my last point, love never ends. All the really good things that we aspire to now, right? Our desire to be used by God, to be gifted by God, to serve his church, to be given prophecies, to be given knowledge, to hunger for the spiritual gifts. All of that will one day end. It won't last. You will not speak in tongues in the resurrection age. You will not have the gift of faith in the resurrection age. You will not prophesy. You will not heal. You will not lead people to Jesus. You will not exercise those gifts in the resurrection age. Do you know what you will do? You will love 
you will love God and you will love people. All of our faith, all of our spiritual gifts go away, but love lasts forever. We possess a love that echoes eternity. Would you think about this with me for just a second? The thing that we will do for all of eternity, we can do right now. Isn't that crazy? The one thing that we will do for all of eternity, we can do right now. We can love people in a way that gives them a glimpse of the love they'll experience in God for all of eternity if they come to know Jesus. We can love people in a way that glimpses, even though we will do it in an imperfect way, the kind of love that they were made for from eternity past. We can love people in a way that helps them to get a glimpse of the God that they were made to be in relationship with from before the foundation of the world. Church, we can tell the story of the gospel by the way that we love people. Back to where I started, I I do think that we ought to be a little strange. I do think that we ought to be peculiar, but in a certain kind of way. I think we should be strange in the way that we love one another and the way that we love the people outside of our faith. What if we, H2O Church Bowling Green, were known above all else, we were known for our love. And we loved one another into deeper devotion, deeper intimacy with God. John tells us in his gospel that by, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you what? If you love one another. That's it. How will the world know that we belong to Jesus by the way that we love each other? And then what if that spilled out and we love the unchurched and the de-churched into newfound faith in Jesus? As we leave today, I would love to ask you to ponder this question this week. How is God inviting me to give away the love that he's lavished upon me? How is he inviting me to give away this love that he has so freely, so generously given to me? Who is he setting before me to serve and to sacrifice and to care for? Would you bow your heads and pray with me?